listen, I'm glad you're here. We're not taping yet, are we? Are we taping yet? We are. I better stay. I got See, okay, here's what happened. Last week, about halfway through the sermon, I forgot we were taping. And so I kind of, this is actually, he's going he's gonna to be cutting this part out anyway. So about halfway through, the, my message started going kind of like this. You can imagine what happened. It's like I just disappeared. And then I came back, and then I disappeared again. So I had to go over there and apologize in advance to the folks out there. I said, listen, just listen to the words. Don't worry about the fact that, you know, pay no attention to the man that you can no longer see, okay? They threatened they were going to put a tether around the pulpit and tie me to it, all right, so that I could only go so far before I would get yanked back or something. So, but I actually have pieces of blue tape. If you can't see them, there's a piece of blue tape right here and a piece of blue tape right here. And it says, death to all who pass, okay? You have to remember, Al, you have to remember Al has a military background, okay? So abandon all hope, you who pass here. No, it doesn't say that. But um, hey, a couple of things before we get into the message, because the message is very serious today, but I want to just do a couple of things. First of all, um, last Sunday, most of you grabbed one of those little white perforated cards, and I asked you if you weren't ready to go home and pray about seven people that you could invite to join you for Easter Sunday. Now, this is not to embarrass anybody or, 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 or guilt, but how many of you are planning, you, how many of you are planning on being here Easter Sunday morning for worship? Okay. How many of you are going to be here in this service, the 10 o'clock service? Okay. Anybody going to be at the 845? Okay. 7 o'clock? Okay. If you have to come in early. Okay. How many of you would love to see both of these rooms absolutely filled, both here and out at the Beacon on Easter Sunday morning with people? How many would love to see it filled? How many of you believe those people will come just by osmosis and just happen to show up? Any of you believe that? There might be a few that are looking for a place to worship. They'll look through the paper, and, and, uh, or they will have heard something. But you know as well as I do, the number one reason people will be here to worship Easter Sunday is because of what? An invitation. Somebody inviting them. And so I am strongly encouraging you as your pastor and as someone who just like you would love to see a lot of people here to worship, not just so we can have numbers. That's not the point. The point of it is there are people who have drifted away from the Lord, some of them who have never met the Lord before in a personal way, that need to know of Jesus' love for them. But they also, for those of you that were in Wednesday night Bible study, need to know there's bad news before there's good news, that without Christ, we are hopelessly lost. And the, all of us who are here who claim Jesus Christ as Lord had to come to that point where we recognize the fact that on our own, we could never save ourselves. We had to have Jesus take control of our lives. And I want them to be able to hear that. And they're probably not going to hear it at the courthouse. They're not going to hear it at the doctor's office. They're sure not going to hear it out of any of the seven candidates, six, six candidates now they're still running for president. They're not going to hear it unless they hear it from a person who has already had that experience themselves. And so one of the best ways for that to happen is for you to invite them to come. So here's what I want you to do. Even while I'm sharing the message this morning, as you take that card, you lay it in your lap. If you, don't, if you haven't already filled it out, if you already filled it out, that's awesome. You're already ahead of the game. But if you haven't yet, I want you to put the first name and the last initial of those seven people that you're going to invite. We're gonna, you can leave them because we've already taken, received the offering. You can just leave them on the pews. And Janet Stimler comes in. Janet, do you come in on Mondays? Where is Janet? Where are you at? Is she here this morning, Janet Stimler? Janet comes in here and cleans the sanctuary, I think normally on, mon on Monday mornings. But if she or Marla, one, will gather up all your cards, and she will bring them, and we will make a list. And next Sunday morning on the 20th, on Palm Sunday, you will get a list. And if every one of the 225 of us put down seven names, there'll be almost 1,500 names on that list. Now, I'm not expecting you to pray for every one of those people individually, every Jimmy and Billy and John and Mary and Susie. But I am expecting you to be overwhelmed by remembering that if we would just be faithful, that if even half of those people, if even a third of those people would say, yes, I'll join you for, for, for worship. And who's to know what the Holy Spirit might do? So 
that's going to be for, your, for, for our sake as we pray. Also, next Sunday morning, you'll get these little invite cards. See, this week you start talking to your friends. Start talking to them about it. And then next week you'll have a little card. Say, hey, this is just a little reminder. Got the time in here. I wrote a little note that I'll meet you in the foyer or I'll, you know, if you're going to go by and pick them up or whatever and bring them with or whatever. You're going to meet them for breakfast before you come. Whatever you choose to do, that's fine. Give them that information and that way they will, they'll be able to join you. All right? Take your Bibles, if you haven't already, and turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, the passage that Dell just read for us. And we're going to pray, and then we're going to look into God's Word. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Let's pray together. Father, you know my heart better than I know it myself. You know the kind of work you have done in my heart this past week. Not just in the cerebral, academic preparation of a message, but in the deep work of a son whom you love, who could not bring this message unless he also was struggling with his own sin. And I thank you for that, even though it was not always easy this week. And now you have, in a way that to me, to this day, makes no sense, chosen me to be the messenger to stand before people whom I love and respect, people to whom I have committed my life and my ministry to serve. You have chosen me and placed me here to declare your message to them. And the only thing I know how to pray in this moment is not that I may be found worthy because I will never be worthy, not that I may be found suitable because I will never be suitable, but that your word in spite of my unworthiness and my unsuitability will be spoken clearly so that by your spirit you will speak to your people and that that spirit will elicit a response that you desire in our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 7. Solomon has just completed building the temple, and in chapter 6 of the book that we are open to, he has prayed a long prayer, asking God to accept this place as his own, knowing that God does not abide in a house built with hands, but that he will recognize this as a place where they can come and meet with him, come into his presence in a very real and tangible way, not so much as individuals, although as individuals as well, but basically as a nation, as, as God's people. And several times in chapter 6, he refers to them as, we are your people. So when we as your people come, and he even recognizes, beginning in verse 36 of chapter 6, that there will most certainly come a time when they will sin against God. He even says, for there is no one who does not sin. Sounds like he'd already read Romans chapter 3. He said, there is no one who does not sin. So when we sin, I'm asking you to hear us when we come to you at this place asking for forgiveness when we come to our senses, he says in verse 37 of chapter 6, and we repent and petition you, listen to us. 
And so then in chapter 7, God begins to answer that prayer of Solomon's. And he says in verse 12 of chapter 7, as Dale read for us just a minute ago, I have heard your prayer. I have chosen this place for myself as a temple of sacrifice. If I close the skies, there is no rain. If I command the grasshopper to consume the land. If I send pestilence on my people. In other words, if I send judgment on them, that righteous judgment that we talked about last week, if I send judgment on them, and if my people who are called by my name will do four things, I will heal them. They will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways or their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. And the first thing that must be done for healing to come is what? Say it. Humility. If my people will humble themselves, we cannot repent until we have been humbled. We cannot seek God's face until we have been humbled. We cannot even pray adequately until we have humbled ourselves before the Lord. Last Sunday morning, about 80% of us raised one or both of our hands and said, I recognize the fact that I am one of those that needs revival. Remember the title of the sermon was Revival. Who needs it? And about 80% of us said, I need it. And then some of us, most of us even raised our hands and says, and I want that in my life. I mean, I try to be as honest with you as I could. I understand sometimes we know there are things that we need, but we just don't want it. I knew a year, a little over a year ago, that I needed to lose some weight. I was going to die. I was not going to get to play with Sam's children, my grandchildren, if I continued the direction I was going. But I didn't want to do it. And it took a year of struggling to get to where God has led me at this point and continuing to watch over me through His grace and glory. But we said, I want it, I need it, and I want it. And I'm here today on behalf of the one to whom you made that cry to tell you, if you truly want a Pentecost in your life, if you want a coming down of God's Spirit and an infilling and a renewing of your relationship with Him, if that's something that you long in your heart to have, if you long to feel that fire in you, that joy in you, that peace in you, that, 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 that wonderful sense of communion with God, with Christ, with His Word, that close walk, that day-to-day fellowshipping with Him, if you want that, your Pentecost will come, but it will not be painless. It will not be painless. We live in a world that wants to do everything without pain. But it doesn't work that way. It will not be painless. There will be things that we will have to do in our individual lives, the things we'll have to do corporately as a church family in order for God to say, now I'm ready to bring not only healing, but I'm also ready to bring restoration, and I'm ready to bring fruit, and I'm ready to bring blessings, and I'm ready to help you move forward to do the things that I have for you to do. And the first thing we must do is humble ourselves. Now, what does that mean? Well, just like so many things in Scripture, most of us, including me oftentimes, most of us have a terribly warped picture of what these terms mean. So I want to explain to you in just a few minutes we have together what it means for us to humble ourselves. And I think the best way for us to do that is to look at the opposite of humility, which is pride. Thank you. The opposite of humility is pride. Well, what is pride? Pride is where I elevate myself. I am, I am self-seeking. I am self-serving. I'm looking to self-satisfy. I'm looking for self-glorification. I'm looking for self-adoration instead of seeking God's glory. 
and God's praise and God's fulfillment and God's adoration and God's worship and God's praise. It's setting myself up. And we know where all that started. It started with Lucifer, with Satan himself, when he says, I will be like God. I will be like the Most High. I will be God. And every one of us, because of the sin nature that we inherited and that we affirmed by our own actions, every one of us goes through multiple times, probably every day, where we wrestle with wanting what we want in life. Now, is there anything wrong with having what you want? Absolutely not. It's just what God wants you to have. But for you to want what you want and it not be what God wants you to have, there's a word for that, a wonderful little three-letter word, and it's called sin. For me to desire what I want, whether God wants it or not, is the root of pride. And in the book of James, among other places, we hear a phrase that should terrify us. It says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know what that word opposes mean? That word oppose is a military term. It is a phrase where an enemy will set themselves in battle array, armor in place, weapons drawn against their enemy. It says, if you think that you can get away with being proud, I'm telling you, I have set my forces in opposition against you. You are the object of my opposition. Now, how many of us want God to be our opponent? How many of us want God to put us in the crosshairs of his judgment. I don't, because guess who's going to win that battle? It's not going to be me. God opposes those who are proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You see, at its core, two things you need to know about this, about humility. At its core, what humility really is, is just looking at life, at God, at ourselves, at creation, at everything that we experience in the proper way, in the right manner. It means we see God as God and who He is. We see ourselves in light of that. We see the created order as part of that. But what humility really is, see, people get the idea that humility is some kind of of, of self-hatred, self-loathing, cutting yourself down, putting yourself down to where you're of no repute, doing all of these things and being broken and all this stuff and just feeling horrible. But you know what? Humility is not that at all. Humility is not an emotion. It's a decision of the mind. It is an act of the will to say, I will look at my world, at God, at myself, at my surroundings, at my family, at my friends, at my coworkers, at my friends, at my enemies, the same way that God does. That's all humility is. Humility is merely seeing the world accurately. Because when we get filled with pride, guess what? We start seeing the world inaccurately. We elevate ourselves We value ourselves more highly than we should. So what happens to everybody else around us? They get devalued. Well, I don't care what you want. I want this. I'm sorry that doesn't go on what you want, but guess what? This is what we're going to do. And what makes it, and I think I can use this word in this room. I'm I'm not saying it's a curse word. I'm saying it's a biblical word. What makes that error a damning error is when we also Can I say it? We also bring God down as we elevate ourselves. We say, now God, as long as you're willing to go on what I want, we're going to be just fine. But Lord, I'm just telling you, I'm drawing the line right here. I'm not going another step further than this right here. 
Does that not terrify you? And yet, is there any one of us that hasn't said that in one way or the other to God at some point? Now, Lord, I'll do this. I'll pray for these seven people to come to church, but I am not going to embarrass myself and go knock on their door or stop them. I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. I don't care what pastor says. I'm not going to do it. And the Lord has laid these people on your heart, and their eternal destiny might be resting in whether you obey him or not over the next two weeks. I'm not saying it will in every case, but it may, and you don't know. Only God knows. And you say, I don't care. I'm not going to do it. Then go ahead and raise your hand now because you're the new God and we'll all bow and worship you. But I'm not planning on bowing any other God but Jehovah God. How about you? I am not God. Stephen Curtis Chapman said it so well. God is God and guess what? I am not. So you see, in one sense, it is a sense of brokenness because we have to recognize how filled we are with pride. But I don't want to give you the wrong impression. This is not a one-time thing. This is a day-by-day-by-day battle. It's like it is with any sin. See, pride is at the root. In fact, John Owen said he believed that pride was at the root of every sin that we commit. And he's probably right. You know why? Because every time I sin, what do I do? I choose what I want instead of what God wants. I mean, think about it. When Eve was told, don't eat that fruit, and she ate the fruit, what did she do? She chose what she wanted, and that's pride. I put myself above God. So John, John Owen said that, every, that pride is at the root of every sin, and so just like we have to wrestle with sin every day, we have to wrestle with pride every day. So please don't get the idea you're ever going to attain it, you're ever going to achieve it, okay? Don't ever think that you will have arrived. We are constantly in this battle like we are with every other sin. But it's something that we must consciously and constantly work toward consciously and constantly yield ourselves, allow ourselves to be broken, our pride to be broken, so that we can live the way that God would have us live. And then healing and blessing and communion and fellowship and renewal and revival will come. You want that? Let's start breaking the pride in our lives. Now, let me give you an example, the example. We know exactly who it is and where it comes from. Philippians chapter 2. If you want to turn there, but I'm not going to read it, but you know where it is. Philippians chapter 2. The one example of what humility is all about is the Lord Jesus himself, who, although being equal with God, did not consider equality with God as something to grasp, but he emptied himself, humbled himself, and took on the form of a servant. And then being found and made in the likeness of men, he again humbled himself in, in obedience even unto death on the cross. And then what did God do? Because God saw that, he exalted him. God resists the proud, but exalts the humble. And so Jesus becomes for us, and not just in the Philippians passage, but even when Jesus was talking to his disciples, remember when he was talking about serving, he said, even as your master came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus gives us the classic example of what it means to take his will, because remember, in this way that we can't fully understand, even though Jesus is part of the Godhead, he is God, just like God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, he also is a separate, unique part of that Godhead. And so Jesus subjugated his own will, his own desire. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if it be possible, please let this cup pass from me. I do not want to have to do this. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus subjected himself to his Father's will, knowing that his Father's will was always best, went all the way to death on a cross, buried in a, bar in a borrowed tomb, three days later, brought back to life to show that the debt had been paid for our sins and that Jesus' humiliation would result in exaltation. 
And so Jesus then becomes our model. And so in thinking about this message, I jotted down actually a compendium of several sources, some of the blessings that come to us when we allow our pride to be broken. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be tough for you. And right now, you're struggling. You're thinking, well, am I really all that proud? I guarantee if you have to ask the question, the answer is yes. Okay. We'll talk about that in just a couple minutes. But some of the blessings, number one, the first thing I jotted down was God draws near to the brokenhearted. That's what he says in James 4, 6 and other places. God will draw near to those who see themselves for who they really are. Because what happens is the minute we say, God, I cannot do this. God, I cannot. I am not strong enough. I am not smart enough. I am not, not, not wise enough. God says, good. Now I can start to help. I can draw near to you. I can help you. I can step right in and we'll pick it up. I will pick you up and I will carry you forward where I want you to go. Secondly, new life is released in the midst of brokenness. Remember Jesus when he was sitting at the table? He said, this is my body which is broken for you. And out of Jesus' brokenness, new life sprang out into the world. And in the same way, when we are broken, life flows out from us. New life not like Jesus, of course, but in the sense of we begin to be a testimony to those around us. Brokenness brings with it an increased capacity for love and worship. Remember the woman who knelt at Jesus' feet and anointed his feet with ointment and wept over his feet and dried them with her hair? She was broken because of her sin, and that brokenness allowed her to open up and worship Christ because she saw him for who he really was. Let me say this with all the love I have in my heart, but also as honest as I know how. There are some of us who are sitting in this room right now, right now, this morning in this service, who cannot fully and completely worship God because you still have barriers of pride between you and him. Oh, and you can give lip service, and you can do some worship, but you cannot worship him wholly and completely because you're still reserving the right to make some of your decisions on your own. And as long as you do that, he will not be honored by you until you release to him those things that are in your life. Just like that woman did. She released everything. She had nothing left to barter with. And so she fell at Jesus' feet and she worshiped him. Brokenness brings increased fruitfulness because God uses things that are broken. My favorite example of that is that brother in the spirit of mine, Jacob, who wrestled at Peniel. Remember that wrestling with the angel that he had? Oh, man, he was good. I think I can take him. I think I can handle this guy. And Jacob's wrestling. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And he reached out and just touched him. And his hip, and his hip went out of socket. And next thing you know, have you ever had your hip go out of socket? Guess where you end up? You are on the ground. He was down for the count. But the minute he fell, he the angel reached up, picked him up, and he went outside that place and said, limping on that hip. Limping. But he would then became the powerful servant of God that went into Egypt with his family doing what God had for him to do. But it took brokenness first. As long as he was the dealer, wheeler dealer with God, as long as he thought he could cut a deal with God, as long as he thought he could get away with some things with God, God says, I can't use you. So he had to break him. And once he did, fruitfulness could flow out from him. 
Fifthly, brokenness results in true revival, the release of God's Spirit through our personal and corporate brokenness. Do you truly want to see this church family have a lasting, eternal impact on this town, on this county, on this part of the state? I do. I want to see us be the place from which life flows. It's not going to flow because we have a better program or better staff or more members or more money. It's going to come when we are fully surrendered in humility before God and we say, Lord, use us in whatever way you choose. And next thing you know, you'll begin to see Him work. But not until we humble ourselves corporately and say, Lord, we just want to serve you. That's all we want. That's all we want. And if you're like me and you're already there, you're saying, okay, well, I'm there. I really want that. What's the problem? Well, it's because I hadn't looked in the mirror yet. I was too busy looking at everybody else. Well, I sure wish you could fix brother so-and-so, Lord. You need to get on him and get him straightened out. Man, old sister so-and-so, everything I do, she gets mad at me. She calls me and fusses me out about every single thing. If I buy a yellow pencil, she wants to know why I didn't buy red. When are you going to straighten that lady out, Lord? Or says, dude, I got some beams in your eye I got to take care of first. Let's see if we can't get you straightened out first. Well, Lord, I wasn't thinking about that really right now. He says, well, I know, but I was. I'm not trying to be funny or humorous with you. I'm trying to tell you that, that, that revival does not begin with anyone except the person who right now is listening to what I'm saying. And that's you and you and you and you and you and me. That's where revival begins. That's where spiritual strength begins as we humble ourselves and seek His And so, when we do that, when we look at the example of Christ, then we go back to that wonderful passage in Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5. And and I would like for you to turn there so we can talk about it for a second. I didn't put it on the screen. I didn't think to tell Al about it, but that's okay. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 5, and let me just show you what the result is of all of this. Because you see, what happens is, and while you're turning there, I'm going to talk about another passage. In Isaiah chapter 6, what caused the change in Isaiah's life was first he got a vision of who God was. He saw God in all of his beauty and his holiness and his perfection and his righteousness. And suddenly he realized how, how unclean he was in comparison to Almighty God. You see, the reason we get prideful is not because we think too much of ourselves a lot of times, it's because we think too little of God. And so when we begin to see God for who he really is, then we begin to see ourselves the way we should, and then we want to surrender. And he, if you remember, that's, he, Isaiah says, woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, in the midst of the people of unclean lips. And then what happened? God sent one of the angels from the altar, and he grabbed a coal from off the altar, representing sacrifice, and touched him and says, this has cleansed you. See, God took the initiative to do the cleansing. Isaiah just had to open his heart and be prepared for it. And so what we have to do is we have to say, Lord, I need you to cleanse me. I recognize the fact that I have been eaten up with pride, and I want now for you to cleanse me. And so in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 5, he starts out by saying, in the same way younger men be subject to the elders. That's referring back to the previous sentence. But then he says, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And if you have the Holman, you probably have a footnote there that says literally, tie around yourselves humility. Now what that tells me is this is not, this is not inherent in who we are by nature. You ever thought about the fact that humans are the only if you want to call us animals, are the only creature that can be naked? Why don't you dress that dog? That dog's running around naked. Well, look at, the, look at that cat. It doesn't have a stitch of clothes on. But humans take their clothes off, and they call the cops, okay? After you finish laughing in some cases, but call the cops. And so the concept of being clothed 
implies that there is something that is outside of us that must be imparted onto us. So when he says, clothe yourself with humility, it means that is not our nature. Our nature is to look out for number one. Our nature is to be prideful. Our nature is to want what we want. Our nature is to get the best of the others. So we have to clothe ourselves with humility. Why? Because, there's that verse there. Now, this is in Peter. We see it again. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your care on Him, because He cares about you. So you see, we see God for who He is. We look at the example of Christ. We recognize who we are, and we say, I must be cleansed. And we're broken. We're broken because of our sinfulness. We're broken because of our pride. We're broken because we want our way instead of God's way. We're broken because we spend more time looking at everyone else than we do ourselves. We're broken because there are so many things in our lives that are hindering us from being filled and empowered by God's Spirit. And we say we need revival, and we want to be revived. We want to be renewed. We want to be drawn closer to God. And I'm here to tell you today the way it begins is through humbling ourselves. It is through being broken. You see, the things that God does to us to break us, not because He's angry with us, it's not punishment. And I don't want to get into that right now because we don't have time, but it's not punishment in the technical sense of that word. It is done because God wants to bring us back to a state of joy so that we can recognize we can become children again. You know, children have joy in playing at the playground. Adults want to own the playground. Children are happy when they can get a cookie. Adults want to make sure they get all the cookies and no one else gets any. And God says, I want you to become children again. And I want you to see the world the way it really is, that I am your father. I am here to take care of you. I am here to guide you and protect you. And your responsibility is to humble yourself and recognize the fact that your first question should be, Father, what do you want me to do? And then go do it. Like a friend of mine who the other day, we were, we were having breakfast together, and he was reminded of telling me about a memory, a wonderful memory he had of his grandfather when he was a little boy. He would ride with his grandfather's truck out to the construction site. His father was a contractor. He would ride with his grandfather out there, and his grandfather was teaching him, riding in the truck, how to sing Trust and Obey. And so I wasn't about four years old. He would teach me over and over until I knew every verse. I could sing every word of every verse of Trust and Obey. Because you see, that's what humility is. Humility is trusting that God can be God without your help. And God of your life without your help. And then when you trust Him that way, guess what you can do? You can obey Him. Obedience, obedience becomes easy when you're trusting Him because you know He knows what's best. Now, I want to finish with a little piece of paper that I'm going to ask a couple of men, and I'm not allowed to move away else, else death will come to me. So I'm going to ask a couple of guys to come down and grab that stack of lavender paper, and I want every one of you to get one of these. These are steps to help you cultivate humility in your life. And I owe a deep debt of gratitude to Brian Hedges, pastor in Niles, Michigan, or an article that he wrote that I called these points from. And we're not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to send, you, send it home with you to read. But I want to just review the points. So I'm going to go ahead and start talking about them while they're passing them out to you. These are steps to cultivate humility. If you are serious, if you have heard God speak to you this morning, and you are serious about cultivating humility in your life, number one, you need to know the greatness of your sin and the greatness of your God. You need to understand who God is and who you are. Number two, 
you need to learn to give up self-defense. We are masters at knowing how to defend ourselves. We are masters at knowing how to protect ourselves. Now listen, let me make sure you understand. If someone is falsely attacking your reputation, it is perfectly right for you to defend the testimony of the gospel as it is seen in your life. But that does not mean that you have the right to protect and defend yourself for every single action that you take because you're trying to justify yourself. Let God take care of that. Number three, be harsh on yourselves rather than on others. Wow. Be suspicious of yourself if you think you're humble. If you get overly exercised about someone else's sin, if you get all wrapped up about what somebody else is doing and how horrible they are, there are six men and women vying for the office, the highest office in the United States. I'm not impressed by any of them. I'm just going to tell you right now. I'm not impressed by a single one of them. Okay? I'm scared. Of, well, I'm scared, but I'm not, I'm not impressed. But you know what? I have not lost one minute's sleep that I can think of over those six people because God is still in control. I am not going to get all worked up over whether Mr. Hairdo ends up being our president or not. Or Mr. Conscientious Objector is going to be our commander-in-chief. Doesn't You know what? God's in control. So I put a little point at the bottom of number three. A good test for you if you think you're being too harsh on others. If the matter that you're concerned about is not big enough for you to deal lovingly with the person that you're concerned about, then it certainly isn't big enough for you to tell other people about it. If it's a big deal, if it truly is a big deal, you should be willing to run to that person and say, I need to talk to you. I am concerned about you. I want to help. I ran to someone this morning and did everything I could to hold back my tears as I asked her for forgiveness for a sin I had committed against her. That God brought on my heart this past week through a, a third party who was able, kind of like Nathan did to David, and came to me and said, Pastor, you need to deal with this in your life. They thought this is a serious enough issue. They came to me lovingly and humbly. And I turned around and went to that person and asked them to forgive me. If it's not a big enough deal for you to humble yourself and go to them and offer to help, then it's certainly not big enough for you to talk to everybody else in your Sunday school class about or wherever. I shouldn't pick on Sunday school classes, but wherever. Number four, never consider yourself humble. You'll never arrive there. And I gave you a little laugh in this one. Don't be, don't be like the church guy that was given the medal for being humble and then had it taken away because he was wearing it. Okay? We're never going to arrive. That would be like saying, I'm going to be sinless. You give me two more weeks and I'll be sinless. I got, I'm working on this thing. I'll be done in two more weeks. I'll be sinless. No, you won't. You know that. So don't think you're ever. So you may, you may feel like, well, you know, thank you, God, for helping me make a good decision about this thing. Thank you for helping me. But never forget that that's something that you have to clothe yourself with. Number five, practice humility in the little things. Oh, it's easy to put on the, the cloak of humility when you're here at church or when you're in a certain setting. But, you know, give in to your spouse every now and then. Let them win the argument. Don't get mad when somebody cuts you off in traffic. Be quick to take the blame for something, even if it really wasn't your fault. Practice humility in the little things, and then it will begin to bloom out of you in the larger things. Number six, forget yourself. See, and I don't have time for this today, but you've heard me talk about this enough that I don't think I have to talk about it. There is a backside to humility, to, to pride, which is we, we overly degrade ourselves. I'm just of no value. 
No, I don't even know why God loves me. I don't know why he would ever want me. I don't think I'm worthy of it. Well, you know what? You're not. You, everything you just said is just true. But what happens is you keep making such a big, humongous dealy wheel out of that, that that becomes a backhanded sense of pride. You're proud of your humility. You're proud of the way you degrade yourself. You're still putting the focus on who? On yourself. And next thing you know, you're bragging about how humble you are. But the key is to get yourself away from yourself. Stop focusing on yourself. Focus on God. Number seven, delight in the Lord, not in your accomplishments. Jeremiah 9, 23. I didn't have the space on here to put the quote, but go look it up when you get home. We're not going to boast in our wisdom. We're not going to boast in our power, our might. We're not going to boast in our riches. We're going to boast in the Lord. It's so easy for us to fall prey, to boast on those kinds of things. And lastly, number eight, meditate on the gospel. Spend your time looking to Christ. Simple question. And I, I know this is, I got, I'm saying this from the human perspective looking back on it. We don't know what, God could do anything God wants to do. So I know with that disclaimer. Would you have had salvation if Christ had not been willing to humble himself and go to the cross? No. That was God's plan. Brilliant plan. That he would, just like a sacrificial day of atonement lamb, he would place all the sins of the people on one sacrificial animal, let that one take the penalty on behalf of the offenders so that they then, by placing their hands on that lamb, would receive the forgiveness through the death and the shed blood of the sacrifice. That was God's way of being both just and the justifier of those receive him. Dwell on that. Meditate on that. And the last thing I put on here is the thing I actually am going to read to you and then we're going to pray. The only way we will be freed from the pride of boasting in ourselves is if we find a more worthy object in which to boast. You're always going to boast on something, about something. You'll always boast about something. So isn't it interesting in the Scripture, it never says... Don't boast, but be humble. No, it says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Again and again and again. We see it in Psalms, in Jeremiah, we see it in 1 Corinthians. That our, we, should, we should boast rather than boasting in ourselves. We should boast in the Lord. We should boast in the cross. It says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. So what you do is you shift your allegiance away from yourself to Christ and boast in Him. Boast in the Lord. Boast in the cross. Boast in Jesus Christ and not in yourself. Beloved, I said at the beginning, there's no such thing as a painless Pentecost. We want so much to be transferred from here to here, like Scotty beaming Captain Kirk from one spot to another through the transporter. But it doesn't work that way. That's why that's science fiction. The reality is we have to move ourselves from where we are to where God wants us to be. And the way we do that is through brokenness, through humility, through humbling ourselves, through looking, through, through looking at the Lord and saying, you are God, I am not. Please forgive me. I'm humbling myself and acknowledging to you that I have tried to be the God of my life. I've tried to depend on my own decisions, my own wisdom, my own might, my own riches, my own resources. And I am undone. And today, through the lips of your servant, I have heard in my heart that this is me. I am Naaman. I am Jacob. 
and I need to be broken. Even though I know it's going to hurt, I want you to be in control of my life. I want you to be the master of my life. I want that healing, that forgiving, that restoration to come. And so I humble myself and I pray. I seek your face. I turn from my wicked ways to you, Lord, asking you to forgive me, to heal me, to revive my heart so that I can boast in you and your great work of grace in the life of this poor, wretched sinner. Let's pray together. Father, said everything you asked me to say. I'm sure I left some things out, but I'm trusting you for that too. And I know that a week from today, the people at the Beacon will be listening to this message. And I pray in advance that the same conviction that I have prayed that you would bring into this room in this hour, you will bring there in that one. And I ask, Father, that we would recognize the fact that until we are willing to be broken, until we are willing to humble ourselves before you, which is really just a matter of making the decision to shift our lenses from focusing in an inappropriate way, in an inaccurate way, to an appropriate and accurate one. That in doing that, we can turn back to you so that you can bring healing and cleansing to us. So to that end, Father, we respond. Some of us will want to respond publicly, Because part of being broken is not being afraid to say, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Because we can never get help from one another until we're willing to be honest with one another. For some of us, it's going to happen where we're going to be standing, and then you're going to begin convicting us to go find a person, a spouse, a friend, a brother or sister to whom we respect, have respect, and and whom we can trust to say, I need someone to help me be accountable for this. But wherever it happens, Father, I pray that we will not leave this room unless we are acknowledging the fact that we all need brokenness. We all need to have our pride broken so that we can be humbled in your presence. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. I'm going to ask you to take a few moments now before we leave and respond to what God has said to you. Beloved, if you don't know me after almost 10 years, you're never going to know me. I am not the best craftsman of a sermon. I'm not the best speaker. This morning's sermon was like a handful of, of cookies, and I couldn't figure out which ones I was supposed to give you. I didn't know when I walked into this room 35 minutes ago which of the cookies he had put in my hand you were going to get. And that's why I wanted me to record it because I didn't think I could do it again. But I want you to understand that the message is clear. We cannot be transformed until we are broken. And to use the Blackaby term, this is a crisis of belief right now. You're at a crossroads. And you have to say, okay, Lord, I'm either going to stop the direction I'm going, I'm going to acknowledge it, and I'm going to ask you to do in me what only you can do. Or, I think I'm good a little bit longer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay back and wait and see. And God says, okay. 
but you're not going to get my blessing. You're going to start having, you're going to be having opposition from me. Because I tell you, the, see, if I don't preach this way, I don't open the door for the Holy Spirit to follow up. I mean, I really believe that. Not that he can't, but once you hear it, if you hear it and reject it, guess what you just did? You just, you just like those, like those, when you see those Palestinian or Israeli things and the kids are all throwing rocks, guys with, with Uzis, probably not a real smart idea. You're going to take a rock because you just heard God's challenge. You're going to take a rock and throw it and say, I'm not, you just go away. I'm not going to do this right now. But you don't want him to oppose you. He loves you too much to let you get away with that. So now's your time. Some of you may want to come and kneel and pray. Some of you may say, okay, I'm not really sure I'm ready in front of 150 people to come walking down that aisle, but I do know I need to make some change. And, and sooner or later I will because I need people to know what they probably already know about me, but I've not been willing to admit, and that is that I am full of pride. And I need to be broken. I need to become simple. So right now take that first step right where you can be standing as we sing. Without him, I could do nothing. Without him, I'd surely fail. Without him, I'd be drifting like a ship without a sail. Let that be your testimony. Let's stand together.